Welcome to TopCast and to Chapter 10 of The Fabric of Reality, The Nature of Mathematics. Today I'll be talking about an issue, a topic, a chapter that really I've mentioned as much as I've mentioned anything else on TopCast over these last few years. Throughout the beginning of infinity, we discussed the nature of mathematics. I've done an episode on the mathematician's misconception. I've done many episodes on other philosophers and physicists' misconceptions about mathematics. And of course, I've talked about David Deutsch's view of how mathematics, our knowledge thereof, arises out of his own discoveries in physics. So the strange thing is that I'm kind of doing so much in reverse today because my mind was blown. It was completely changed by chapter 10 about mathematics. The first time I began to think, hold on, this mathematics stuff that I've been told throughout school, high school, and then university, how mathematics stood apart, it was a realm of certainty. It was the one place where you could get to the truth, in fact, turned out to be just as fallible a domain of knowledge as everything else. This was, to say that this was surprising is a massive understatement. Even though I'd read the previous nine chapters of The Fabric of Reality, I couldn't have predicted the content of chapter 10. I wasn't smart enough, I suppose. But it didn't enter my mind that all that stuff about conjectural knowledge that had already come also applied to mathematics until it was laid bear for me here in this chapter. And once again, as I talk about throughout the TopCast series, one of the most thrilling parts of the worldview of David Deutsch is this sense of vertigo you get when you first encounter it. And then rather often when you hear the man speak, <laughs> because your cherished assumptions about the world, when you think you're this erudite, educated, intellectual person who understands at least part of the nature of reality, then Deutsch hits you in the face over and again with how everything that you previously thought, in fact, is wrong. <laughs> and this is no exception. This is a prime example, pardon the pun, of exactly this phenomenon. There were the two big occasions in the book that I've talked about before. The first was chapter two, Shadows, where the ground fell out from under me, that in fact, hey, you could understand quantum theory. That was here in the fabric of reality. Also, again, when David Deutsch undermined solipsism for me and said, because hitherto I'd kind of bought into the idea, as many do who study philosophy and physics, that Descartes kind of got something right. Namely, that I think, therefore I am, is a certain or necessary truth each time you utter it. So it wasn't until earlier on in the fabric of reality that you read that there's an argument against this. Namely, that, that argument is that if you're the only thing that exists in the universe, you're a solipsist, if you buy into this idea that you can be certain yourself that you exist and that's the only certainty you have and everything else could just be a dream, well, you're still buying into relativism with some needless philosophical baggage because all you're saying is that the content of your mind, your dream, is just as complicated and complex and, and behaves in the same sort of autonomous way as regular realism does. It's just, it can be investigated via the methods of science and philosophy and mathematics in the same way that regular realism can. So these were two moments of vertigo at least, but this, this stands equally as tall. This idea 
that everyone is brought up with, that mathematics is absolutely certain, you can't possibly question anything in mathematics, how could mathematics ever be wrong, mathematics stands apart from everything else, well, here we go, we're just going to apply fallibility to mathematics, but not just. And where does this come from anyway? Now I think David Deutsch's spin on this adds something quite new. Via his own personal discovery of the theory of quantum computation, it brings physics into the picture, into the Popperian epistemological picture of fallibility that we have. Yes, you can get there about the nature of mathematics via Popper alone. Namely, mathematics is just conjectural. All knowledge is conjectural. All is a woven web of guesses. You can get there via Xenophanes two and a half thousand years ago. What does Deutsch add to this? Well, he adds a fundamental physical theory to the picture as well. After all, this is the man who first created the theory of quantum computation. Why does that matter? This is a universal theory that applies everywhere to all physical systems. It says that even your brain can be simulated by a quantum computer. Every single atom that's vibrating there could, in principle, be simulated by a quantum computer. What does this mean? It means that there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between the internal workings, the goings-on inside a quantum computer, and any physical process, including your brain. So therefore, whatever laws apply to the quantum computer also apply to what your brain does as well, because they are equivalent in terms of fundamental physics. The laws that apply to one govern both. Why does this matter? Why does this universality of computation applying to the laws of physics, to all physical systems, have anything to do with the nature of mathematics? Well, because our understanding of mathematics, including the, intu the so-called intuitions of mathematicians, are what brains are doing. Mathematicians arrive at their theorems, their truths, their understanding of these pristine abstract objects, their understanding of those objects, mind you, via the use of a physical system governed by physical laws. Physical laws which mandate the uncertainty of the output of any physical system that is performing a computation, which includes stuff like what the brain is doing. The brain is performing a computation. Yes, you can get some physicists to say things, which I regard as somewhat nonsense, People like Martin Rees, who is a world-renowned astrophysicist, cosmologist, highly respected, but will say things like, comprehension is not a computation. Well, that's just an assertion. There's no explanation behind that. After all, it contravenes, contradicts a known law of physics. That known law of physics is all physical processes are computable. They amount to computations. They're in one-to-one -one correspondence with the goings-on of a quantum computer. That's provable. So if it's the case, which it is, that the output of a quantum computer is subject to error, which it is, then so too is any physical process performing a computation. That includes what a brain does. So Anything that a mathematician thinks is going to be subject to error. And you might think, well, can't we just correct errors? Yes, you can, but that process itself is also subject to errors. But like any area of knowledge, whether it's mathematics or science or history or whatever, 
the critical approach helps you to identify the errors and correct errors, but you can never be sure or certain. You, you can never reach this state objectively. You might think that you've got it subjectively. You might feel as if you're sure or certain or something like that, but that doesn't mean you're objectively reach the truth in physical reality. You can't get outside everything is a woven web of guesses. You can't get outside the laws of physics. And so for that reason, what your brain does, the certainty that you feel could always be a mistake. It could always have been a quantum fluctuation of some kind, giving you the illusion of certainty, the illusion of having found something true. It could give the illusion of everyone on planet Earth having the feeling that something is absolutely true when in fact it contains an error that none of us notice. Now, this can happen, the best explanation for this kind of thing is, of course, that people have just made a mistake and have hitherto misunderstood something. But it could be the case. You, you can't rule out the possibility that there could be some sort of exceedingly unlikely small measure of universes and we happen to occupy one branch of the multiverse where we've just made the error over and over and over and over and over again and we're in a history where we just think that we've arrived at absolute pristine certainty and truth when in fact it's not the truth after all. Okay, so that's a bad explanation, but it's also something that can't be ruled out. Whatever the case, this does provide a physical substructure to what Karl Popper was saying in terms of philosophy, namely that error is everywhere. Misconceptions abound. We can never be sure, we can never be certain that to have arrived at the final ultimate truth because knowledge is conjectural. The only way in which we reach external reality is via our minds, which are encased inside the darkness of our skulls, working on brains, obeying the laws of physics. We have these imperfect channels, which sure, we can attempt to error correct and sometimes we do, quite reliably error correct, but we can never perfectly ensure that we are ever free of error. Indeed, progress depends upon there always being misconceptions and errors out there in all of our knowledge, including mathematics, because it's by correcting those errors that we improve, we make progress. And so error, from that perspective, is a good thing. The fact that it exists, the possibility of error, means the possibility of correcting errors, which means the possibility of moving forward. If there wasn't an error somewhere, that would be a block to possible progress in that domain. And that's not a good thing. We want to make progress everywhere in all directions, infinite in all directions, all the time. So this chapter of the fabric of reality, the nature of mathematics, was written before I think the arguments were even better refined by David himself later on, under the title of what he has come to call the mathematician's misconception. Famously now, in his Dirac Award Ceremony speech, he delivered an address or lecture titled The Mathematician's Misconception. The text of the speech is here on his website. Uh, I've done some podcasts about it. You can watch the lecture itself, which I highly recommend. And it talks about the contents of chapter 10, but in new ways. It approaches it in, in subtly different ways. It's also, of course, there in the beginning of infinity as well, in the reality of abstractions and, and peppered throughout much of the rest of the book as well. Ultimately, it just comes down to human beings are fallible. We are fallible 
creatures. Our minds are performing computations. This is very difficult for some people to understand, I think, and to appreciate the full implications of that what our minds are doing is computing stuff. Very few physicists, it seems to me, although they tend to agree with the basic underlying principle, don't seem to appreciate the implications thereof. Namely, the implication being that you can always be wrong, even about mathematics. This is why I've done so many podcasts, and in particular, this one here, which focuses very heavily on the mathematician's misconception. As you hear people like Max Tegmark enunciate over and over again, although he understands physics very well, I don't think he understands the implications of the universality of computation and of quantum physics in particular, Although he understands quantum physics, the philosophical implications are very important. He illuminates for me what I tweeted out recently about how, you know, uh, lots of people who do philosophy degrees, uh, they will study formal logic, which is highly symbolic. It looks technically difficult. It looks like mathematics, but it's not quite mathematics. And certainly studying logic to a high level of proficiency, as one can do, even mathematical logic doesn't give you any insight into, let's say, calculus. It doesn't even tell you anything about trigonometry. These things are separate areas of mathematics, if you like. One doesn't automatically translate into the other. You don't get the other by osmosis. In the same way, you can do an entire degree in pure mathematics and never have a good understanding of the laws of physics. You might be technically proficient in mathematics, but you just don't understand, you don't have an intuitive feel for the laws of physics. You don't know how to fix an engine. You don't understand what uh, the standard model of particle physics is. You might not even understand what general relativity is, what the implications are, all that kind of stuff. And in the same way, in precisely the same way, you can be a theoretical physicist, technically proficient in solving your physics equations, in understanding the history of physics and, and be able to perform calculations using general relativity and quantum theory and maybe even string theory. But at no point do you study the fundamentals of epistemology, much less Popperian epistemology, the correct stuff, the right stuff, the good stuff. But a lot of physicists, although they understand the first two moves are invalid, namely understanding logic doesn't mean you're going to understand mathematics more broadly and understanding mathematics quite broadly and deeply doesn't mean you're going to understand physics at all. They understand all that's true, but they don't seem to appreciate that exactly the same move is invalid when it comes to being a good physicist and understanding epistemology. Epistemology doesn't come along for the ride, so to speak. It should, and it would be nice if it did, but people just aren't taught epistemology, and insofar as they are, they have a folk epistemology, which is completely false. Even the philosophy departments don't teach this stuff. There's no one outside of the community of people who have coalesced around the work of David Deutsch and Karl Popper who really understand this stuff properly. Yes, I have to say it. That's just the way it is. The so-called critical rationalist school gets how knowledge grows is created and what knowledge is. And I would say, unless you're reading the work of Chiara Maletto and David Deutsch, you don't, under, you don't have our best understanding of what knowledge is. You will have a completely misaligned view about knowledge. You will have a platonic type view. You will have the objectivist type view that you can get to certain knowledge and all this sort of incorrect stuff. Anyway, my point is here that often people go to physicists, when I say people, I mean 
podcasters, you know, people like Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, uh, any number of people will go to a physicist to try and understand how knowledge broadly works. They will ask them questions about philosophy and epistemology as if they have some deep insight about these things, but they don't. They're separate domains. It needs to be understood independently in its own terms. The epistemologist who is expert in, let's say, Popperian epistemology, won't necessarily have any deep insights into general relativity, although they might have some, because if you are reading Karl Popper, Popper's work, he talks so much about general relativity, quantum theory, the science broadly, and so therefore you will end up having some understanding of those areas, because he's always drawing on examples or instances of where his epistemology applies in real-life science, a rarity, a rarity in philosophy. You know, you don't get this in Ayn Rand, for example. She doesn't draw her examples from the history of science. She draws her examples from an abstract realm or from morality or from economics and finance and, and certain parts of history. But it's not grounded in science, which is where I think philosophy is best applied because it's clean. It has nice, clean examples of how knowledge is generated and what knowledge is. And then you realize, ah, that's how it works in science. Therefore, that's how it works everywhere because basically we're all being scientists all the time in trying to understand the world, our circumstance in the world. And of course, Popperian epistemology then goes on to explain how, well, the demarcation between science and non-science is via the criterion of testability, but that's not a criterion of meaning and so on and so forth. All that kind of stuff comes in. And so then you understand that science is this kind of separate thing. Okay, my point still is... <laughs> Physicists in general don't understand this stuff. They don't understand how knowledge is created, what it is, and so they are liable to make the kinds of errors that Max Tegmark makes or Sabine Hossenfelder makes or Eric Weinstein makes and, and so on it goes. The, the, the list of physicists is, well, as long as the list of physicists that you can name who think that mathematics has this special place in the pantheon of subjects that we can study, namely that it is a realm of perfection, of platonic ideals that we can have access to. David Deutsch brings to us a different vision of what the relationship between knowledge creation and people and mathematicians is to the stuff they're studying, to the stuff they're studying. These are separate things. Your understanding of the truths of mathematics and the truths of mathematics themselves and how to bridge that gap via this method of, as Karl Popper explains, conjecture and refutation, forms of criticism. This is different to all those other philosophies that are out there about this kind of stuff. And it applies to logic and perception and all that stuff that Ayn Rand and the objectivists get completely wrong when they get so much else right. Now, it may seem like I'm picking on the objectivists here. And to some extent, I suppose I am because they're emblematic of this particular error, the error that is described by the mathematician's misconception, because I think the mathematician's misconception runs deeper than just mathematics. It's the very idea or mistake that the empiricists made as well, that there is this royal road to certain perfect truth. And the mathematicians still hold to that today. They still hold on to this notion that you can intuit your idea or perceive perfect truth in some way, shape, or form. 
you can get outside of what Xenophanes called all being a woven web of guesses. Once you take that truth seriously, this idea that we're conjecturing our way to knowledge, all is just this web of guesses that you can't see the truth, perceive the truth, and access the truth, the final truth. But instead, all you can do is conjecture what you think could be the truth and create knowledge about that stuff. And by error correction over time, guess that you might have found some truth, some useful information, something we call knowledge, which has some of the errors corrected. So we have a movement in the direction of more truth, broadly speaking. But again, that too is not guaranteed, as David Deutsch spoke about in my conversation with him, with Naval Ravikant. We talked precisely about how, well, you just can never know that what you're building in terms of this edifice of knowledge might itself contain all these terrible misconceptions. Maybe, just maybe, what you have is something more like a religion. But then again, you know, I might say something like, well, even religion is not in the whole completely false. It can contain a whole bunch of misconceptions and supernatural nonsense and so on and so forth. But it might still be converging on certain truths that you can get independently via other routes that don't involve the superstitious nonsense, let's say. But all of that aside, the objectivists, like the empiricists, like a whole bunch of other philosophers and philosophies, claim that there is this way of reaching perfection in our knowledge in some way. That although they will admit, and Ayn Rand actually does admit, that we human beings are fallible, that reason is fallible, that nonetheless, there are certain moods in which you can be absolutely certain, like a law of identity, because they can't imagine how it could possibly be otherwise. They want to have a foundation. Everyone wants a foundation, except for Karl Popper and David Deutsch. (laughs) We talk about how you don't need a foundation. It doesn't require a foundation. You're, you're constructing a web, not a building. And there's a difference. You know, The web is sort of all interconnected, and it's able to capture reality to some extent if you're building a good web. But it's not like a building where you have the foundations at the bottom, and if you find a flaw with the foundations, then the whole thing falls apart. The whole thing falls apart. No, What we say is, well, what you're calling foundations might very well shift and change, but the whole thing, the whole structure doesn't have to fall apart. In the same way, the web isn't going to completely collapse because a particular strand is broken at some point. To torture these analogies, perhaps a little too much. Okay, almost enough treading water. We should get into some reading. Maybe one more thing to mention just before I go on. If you want to hear an excellent conversation about some of this, if you're not, let's say, persuaded of the idea, and I know many aren't, this idea that the human brain is a computer, it's performing computations, and so therefore is subject to the laws of physics, and so we can understand or have some deep insight about what the brain can do and can't do and what the nature of different kinds of knowledge is and ideas that we have, explicit and inexplicit ideas, let's say. This wonderful conversation on Luli Tennant's Reason is Fun podcast. It's this one here. Uh, They've had a number of conversations, Luli and David. And in this one in particular, they talk precisely about this idea of the brain being a computer. And 
Luli presses David over and again about this particular idea and the implications thereof. Everyone should listen to this conversation. You can hear Luli probing the truth, okay? The truth that all physical processes can be simulated by a quantum computer. And so all physical processes are subject to the same errors as what computers are. And so the uncertainty is kind of built in at a fundamental level. And so therefore, uh, inexplicit ideas, we can't get to them uh, directly in the same way we can't get to any ideas directly. Everything is, again, this woven web of guesses. And if you want to try and fix something about your mind, let's say, that too is always going to be error prone. And it's understandable that people struggle with this. It's, uh, but I, I put it on a par with you know, this, this notion that the, the brain just is a computer of, of a kind, of a special kind, of course, of a special kind, but you can't get outside of the laws of physics. It's, it's that whole idea of, you know, um, if you have a new explanation, a new theory of physics, and let's say it disagrees with the law of the conservation of matter, well, no big deal, because the law of conservation of matter isn't a law anyway. It sort of applies in chemistry to some extent, but we used to think it was a proper law that governed everything, and then we figured out, well, there are these things called nuclear reactions, which absolutely violate the law of conservation of matter. So, no problem. Your new theory of physics violates the law of conservation of matter? No problem. If your law of physics disagrees with, let's say, the first law of thermodynamics, which is the conservation of energy law, well, okay, you might need to rethink what's going on there. But there's hope. There is hope, after all, because there are certain quantum physical processes which might be able to get you out of your bind in terms of violating the law of conservation of energy or quantum cosmology or certain cosmological, exotic cosmological theories which violate the law of conservation of energy, let's say, you know, where does dark energy come from, this kind of stuff. So, you know, all hope is not lost if your new favoured theory violates the law of conservation of energy, although you should be very critical, indeed sceptical. But as people have often said, if, <laughs> if your new theory violates the second law of thermodynamics, then all hope is lost for you. There is nothing we can say to save your new explanation. It violates a deep fundamental truth about reality, namely that the overall entropy of the universe must increase as time goes on. And if you are saying your new theory violates that, you've got all the work ahead of you. <laughs> I would say that... This idea that all physical processes are computable, and a special case is, well, the, what the human brain is doing is a computable function, it stands on the same level as the second law of thermodynamics, or indeed something like uh, neo-Darwinism, you know, this idea that genes are the unit of selection for evolution by natural selection, which explains why we have a diversity of species, all this sort of stuff, that is a fundamental truth of biology and if your new theory of biology about birds or something violates that in some way well all hope is lost for you in your you know your ornithological theory or your theory of dinosaurs or whatever it happens to be if you try to step outside of that you've got problems all the work is still ahead of you so too if your favored theory of how the mind works or of the brain or of psychology or something like that, tries to say that the brain is not some kind of computer, 
all hope is lost to you. <laughs> Maybe not, okay? Everything is fallible. All knowledge is conjectural. So yes, the second law of thermodynamics could be wrong. Uh, evolution by natural selection could be wrong. The gene might not be the unit of selection. Uh, not all physical processes might be computable. Maybe you've found a you know, quantum gravity computer that challenges our present understanding. But that's the whole point. Our present understanding is our best understanding at the moment. It, it's our deepest understanding of how science works and reason is applied to the universe. And so we need to take our best, deepest theories seriously. It's not to say it's impossible for them to be wrong. In fact, quite the opposite. We expect them to turn out wrong. But in the meantime, in the meantime, if you want to make progress, take them seriously. And when you're talking emergent stuff, make sure the emergent stuff comports with what you understand the fundamental stuff to be about. And there has to be a marrying of this. And if there is a contradiction between these two things, your, your emergent theory of psychology, let's say, and the deep truths that we understand of physics, then... So much for your theory of psychology. Now, I don't think that Lully is making this error, not by any stretch of the imagination, but in certain moods, you can hear people do object to this notion of the brain as a computer. It's not dismissing, it's not, there's nothing dismissive about that claim. It's not saying, well, the brain is just a computer, so therefore so much for qualia, so much for consciousness, so much for uh, the, the deep insights that a, a, a deeper understanding of let's say, memetics and psychology could bring to us. No, there's still the richness of human experiences there, the complexity of humanity and the way in which minds work is all still there. It's just it's bounded within a substrate of physics and what we understand physics to be. In the same way that human bodies obey laws of gravity, human minds obey laws of physical computation. Okay, but, you know, so... What we're about to come to, and I'll begin the reading now, um, is the idea that your, your brain is a noisy quantum system, like everything else in physical reality. Things can go wrong in completely unexpected ways. There are always going to be errors you do not intend, which are all to be expected. This idea of unexpected errors is itself to be expected, given quantum theory. Your mind cannot correct all the errors made by your brain as they are made in real time. Maybe later, but those corrections are themselves, as I said earlier, similarly error-prone. So we're trapped, as I say. Trapped might not be the right word, but we are within this woven web of guesses or a woven web of quantum processes. Those are error-prone. And of course, when you explain this, and I encounter this all the time with objectivists, you explain all this stuff about how knowledge is conjectural, and they say, so you're a relativist then. <laughs> they completely misunderstand that, no, quite the opposite indeed. Not a relativist, not a dogmatist. A fallibilist says that there is something to be wrong about. They walk the line between these two misconceptions about what knowledge is that knowledge isn't possible on the one hand, the relativist or the, or the skeptics claim, and on the other hand, that you can possess the final certain truth, the dogmatist's claim. The fallibilist says the final ultimate truth, it exists, but you can't get there. So it takes what is 
good about both things, dogmatism and relativism, of which there isn't much, and corrects the errors in those things to produce the philosophy of fallible knowledge, fallible knowledge creators, conjectural knowledge. You know, you sometimes do feel like Gandalf, trapped by Saruman on the Tower of Orthanc. You know, Gandalf would say, as the great Papirian, all is a woven web of guesses. All conjectures are error-prone, and there is no way to escape this simple truth. So, you are a relativist then? No. <laughs> Saruman misses the point. He misses the point, you know. this whole. Then the objectivists miss the point, and other philosophers miss the point that just... By admitting that knowledge claims can contain error doesn't mean that you think there's no possibility of knowledge. You're not a relativist, quite the opposite. Okay, I've said it a number of times now, so let's get to the reading. Clearly, this is going to be an episode in a number of parts. But, of course, as usual with these regular episodes of me commenting on, discussing, breaking down parts of the books of David Deutsch, I won't be reading everything. So I encourage everyone to buy the book if you don't already have it and read along with me and make sure you go to those parts where I skip over because reading the entire thing is absolutely essential for understanding completely what David Deutsch intends, or at least your understanding of what David Deutsch intends more fully. And David writes at the beginning of chapter 10, The Nature of Mathematics from the Fabric of Reality, quote, The fabric of reality that I have been describing so far has been the fabric of physical reality. Yet I have also referred freely to entities that are nowhere to be found in the physical world, abstractions, such as numbers and infinite sets of computer programs, nor are the laws of physics themselves physical entities in the sense that rocks and planets are, end quote. This is a point that I make in my short podcast here, The Mathematician's Misconception. It's something I come back to in this podcast here, where I break down mathematics as discussed by Max Tegmark and Sam Harris in my Things That Make You Go Hmm series. If I can give a plug for that, well worth listening to, not just if you want to hear about what I regard as the errors that a typical physicist makes on these topics and a typical public intellectual podcaster makes on these topics, but I also use it as a reason for explaining the alternative worldview, the worldview that I'm coming from, that David's coming from, I think, and Karl Popper is coming from, and anyone else who is inculcated with these ideas is coming from as compared to what I call the mainstream academic intellectual perspective. And on this topic, there is a certain degree of alignment. It's just how we transition between these two worlds, so to speak. I call it, as Jaron Lanier would call it, being a disciplined dualist. David does not describe himself as a dualist. In fact, he says he's, he doesn't really understand what precisely dualism means. And I get that impulse. You know, does it mean there's two substances in the world? Well, no. 
but does it mean there are two kinds of things in the world? I think it does, and I think it is just the difference between software and hardware, physical things and abstract things, which is what David is saying here. That's all I mean by dualism. And when I say disciplined dualists in Jaron Lanier's sense, it means you don't go saying much more than there are just these two things. Saying what these other abstract things are made of is the wrong question. You can ask what physical stuff is made of. It's made of particles. But to ask what are abstract things made of is the wrong question because they're not made of anything. They're not a substance in that way. And it's also the wrong question to say things like, well, if physical things exist in the physical world, where do abstract things exist? Well, that's the wrong question. It's asking for a time or a place in which to locate these things. But that's the wrong question because they're not located in a physical space with a time and a place that you can have coordinates of. That's not what abstract things are. That's not what abstract existence is about. It's not about the physical location of things. Anyway, I go into that elsewhere, so I won't recapitulate that entire argument here. All of it is just to say there simply are two kinds of things that exist. The stuff that's made of matter, physical entities, and stuff that isn't, that's abstracted away from those physical things, known as abstract things. For example, any individual cat that you can point to is a physical thing. It's made of atoms. But the concept of cats is not made of physical things. It's an abstraction where you take all the instances of cats and abstract from that this thing called cat and you say that's an abstract thing so the category of cats is itself an abstract thing numbers are abstract things concepts like justice are abstract things i would call them ideals that we come to understand increasingly better over time but always imperfectly but there is this ideal a principle if you like that when we put into practice, we imperfectly implement it and we can come to better understand it over time. But it exists and it exists in better and better ways in the physical world. But we're striving for something in the same way that with mathematics, we're striving to understand numbers. And we do that through physical symbols, instantiations, representations of those things that have independent existence. Then we get into really complicated kinds of abstractions. Things like software, because software not only is an abstraction like number, but unlike number, it also has this property of running. You have to take the program, the software, and rather than it just sitting there inertly on a hard drive or a CD-ROM, as we used to call it, or a DVD, or a solid-state device, of course, these days, where it's just sitting there not doing anything. You can still call it software. It's a piece of code, or you could write it down on a piece of paper, if you like. There's an algorithm. It's not doing anything. 
But when it runs, well, the software is running and it's doing stuff. And so that's a different kind of abstraction that now has physical effects in the real world. So that's a different sort of thing. It's still an abstraction. Knowledge itself, broadly speaking, is a kind of abstraction that must be instantiated, be represented in the world for it to exist. You can't call something knowledge if it doesn't exist yet. That's not knowledge. It's not something that we know. But numbers, they really do exist, even if we don't know about them yet. As I like to say, the next highest prime number yet to be discovered really exists. It's out there. And we know it's out there because, hey, in a few days, weeks, months, whenever it happens to be, someone will find it. They will discover it. It was there waiting to be discovered. At the moment, you look up Wikipedia and you find the highest known prime number. We can prove as a matter of rigorous mathematical proof, as we like to say, that there are infinite prime numbers. They're all there. Where are they? Wrong question. They just exist. Not in space, not in time, not in the physical universe, but they do exist. And we can come to find them. Bring them into the real world. From where? Wrong question again. They're not in another place. <laughs> they just exist. Discipline dualists, you can just say they exist. We're going to understand this concept of how abstract things exist itself better over time. We'll come to understand what these things mean. When Jaron Lanier talks about this, by the way, what he's talking about is consciousness. What is consciousness? What is mind? Well, it's a different kind of thing to what a brain is. It's a different kind of thing to what usual matter is. All we can say is that it's different to this other stuff that we use the laws of physics to explain hitherto, mind you. We just don't know how to incorporate consciousness fully or mind fully within our conception of physics yet. We don't fully understand it, but we're coming to. So for now, we just have to be disciplined. In other words, don't make crazy claims that you already understand consciousness. You already have a theory of consciousness without us properly being able to write down the algorithm for it, if you like. But that must be possible, as David Deutsch says. It's a, it's a physical process. It's, it arises in minds. We know that the well, minds arise from brains. We just don't know how. Consciousness arises. Who knows how exactly? Is it only in human minds? I tend to think so, but I can't prove that. Maybe it arises in lower life forms as well. Maybe dogs are conscious. Maybe apes are conscious. Maybe bacteria is conscious. Okay? I think that's a little bit crazy to start going down the panpsychism route. That's another story. I'm getting away from things, but let me just finish this point. That knowledge is this weird thing that has to be instantiated. Numbers are a different kind of abstraction that don't have to be instantiated. Some of them are, the ones that are unknown or have never yet to be instantiated. An infinite number of numbers will never be instantiated, but they still exist. In other words, we'll never possibly write down all the possible numbers that are out there. You know, if you want to talk infinite and different kinds of infinite, well, all the different kinds of infinite are out there in mathematics, but because they're infinite, but the universe has a finite number of ways in which the matter can be arranged, it's simply physically impossible to instantiate all the numbers. That's that. Mind is different again to all those other kinds of abstraction that I have mentioned so far. David Deutsch talks about this in 
this question for David that I asked years ago now when I completed my series on the beginning of infinity, uh, one of the highlights, highlights of, I suppose, my own life here, full stop, but also, you know, highlights of my podcast series was interviewing David, getting to talk to him precisely about this. And one of the questions I was keen to get his opinion on that he doesn't talk about much, but of course he's willing to talk about anything when you ask him, was this question about the nature of mind? And he makes the point here, well, mind is different. It's a different kind of abstraction again. And basically what he says is, well, unlike all those other kinds, including knowledge and including regular software, it needs to be running. It needs to be instantiated physically, just like knowledge. It needs to be running like software kind of needs to be running to be software rather than just code represented as hardware. But also, do... Does mind need to be running in a particular kind of physical substrate? Does it need to be running at a certain speed? How fast? These are questions yet to be answered. After all, if you were to take the algorithm for mind, whatever that is, when I say mind, I mean a conscious creative thing like people are, and you just wrote that code down as an algorithm on a piece of paper, that wouldn't be a mind. Not yet. It would be the recipe for a mind. Now, let's say you put that into a regular computer and ran it really slowly. Would that be a mind then? Don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it won't work just as a simulation in a computer. Yet, we don't know. Is there something about wetware? I tend to think not because of the universality of computation, but it, it, the, the question is still, to some extent, open to us. We don't know the relationship between different ways of processing stuff. Is a neural network different to a regular kind of information processing? Is... What a brain is doing different to a neural network, I think the answer is yes. And different again to regular computation, as in the way in which non-neural networks, things like normal computers that are built upon machine code and running binary digits and all that sort of stuff using logic gates, is it different again to that? Perhaps. There's just so much to say here, so many open questions. So does mine need to be running? The answer seems to be yes. Does it need to have a particular kind of physical substrate? Perhaps. Does it need to be running at a certain speed? Perhaps. All these questions are open. Maybe they're all easily answered. Maybe it's just no, no, no. It doesn't have to be running at a particular speed. It doesn't need a particular physical substrate. And mine just is like any other kind of physical program to that extent. I don't know. It will be an interesting day when we can refute all the claims that you do need a physical substrate and you, and you do need a particular speed of runtime and all that sort of thing. But I've certainly made the point. There are two different kinds of things with existence in this universe. Purely physical stuff and things that are a, a bit more than just physical stuff. Okay, so that was 15 minutes on less than a paragraph <laughs> but let's persevere i think we'll get through just a few more paragraphs and we'll just treat this as a, a prelude to the chapter itself let's keep going david goes on to write quote as i have said 
Galileo's book of nature is only a metaphor. And then there are the fictions of virtual reality, the non-existent environments whose laws differ from the real laws of physics. Beyond those are what I've called the can't-got-you environments, which cannot even be rendered in virtual reality. I have said that there exist infinitely many of those for every environment that can be rendered, but what does it mean to say that such environments exist? If they do not exist in reality, or even in virtual reality, where do they exist? End quote. So, just remember here, Galileo's book of nature, David says there is only a metaphor, the idea that the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. There is no such book of nature. You can't read, you can't just look at nature, open up the so-called book, and just get from that book the knowledge, to extract the knowledge. That is the ancient misconception that implies a bucket theory of mind. Basically, the facts are there, just look at them, and you'll extract the knowledge out. This is the objectivist mistake, right? They think there's a book of nature. They think you can just see reality, perceive reality, perceive the knowledge. This is Ayn Rand's mistake. This is the mistake of so many physicists that they really do think that knowledge is there fundamentally as mathematics in the physical world. And it also leads to these misconceptions, and Sam Harris talks about this, and this is this ancient idea, ancient now, of the unusual effectiveness of mathematics in the natural sciences. Okay, yes. So it's true. The natural sciences employ mathematics. Is it so unusual? Is it that much of a deep mystery? After all, I'm on the side of Feynman that it's kind of hitherto that we found that complex mathematics is very, very useful in being a language that is able to describe parts of physical reality. That seems to be no accident. But okay, is Feynman correct that ultimately what we'll find, I say ultimately, but is the next step in the evolution of our understanding of physics going to reveal not higher degrees of complexity, which seems to have been the trend so far. You know, we go back to Galileo, and it's basically an algebraic notion of physics. And then we get to Newton, who employed calculus, far more complicated ways of describing motion. Then we get to quantum theory, where you're employing very complicated forms of algebra, matrix, you know, linear algebra type stuff, or and or very complicated differential equations that go beyond anything that Newton was ever employing. And then you get to, of course, string theory, which is inventing new and even more complicated forms of mathematics in order to describe things that, well, we don't even know if they exist, these strings. And it seems like the evolution is more and more complicated forms of mathematics, which leads some down the road of pessimism. People like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Sean Carroll, uh, various other popularizers who basically kind of throw their hands up in the air and do say things like, well, maybe there will come a limit to how much we can understand because it seems like the mathematics is getting too complicated for us. Well, maybe the mathematics is getting too complicated for them is all that we might say about that. Some mathematicians really love this game of d developing more and more complex mathematics. It's fun for them. It's like art. In the same way that, that artists don't, 
tend to say, well, maybe the next kind of art that we create is going to be too complicated for us to ever possibly appreciate. We can't do it. No, well, you can't do it. I can't do it. I'm not interested in trying to develop ever more wondrous kinds of high fidelity art. It's just not my thing. Whether it's a form of visual art of the kind that, you know, AI is now producing that is even beyond the capacity to some extent of, of human artists to do. Or new versions of cinematography that go well beyond you know, my skill and talent to ever replicate and most people's, but some people are really into that kind of stuff. That's great. That's for them. If you're really interested in these things, you will develop new techniques or new kinds of apps, let's say, new kinds of code. Does, does anyone in the computing community say things to anyone, any coders say, maybe the next kind of app, the next generation of app is just going to be too complicated for us to ever possibly appreciate and ever possibly write. There's a limit to how complicated apps can become. <laughs> no, but in physics, it seems to be, you know, de rigueur. It's just what people say about the laws of physics. Maybe the next generation of the laws of physics, because of this gradual ratcheting up of the complexity of the mathematics used to describe physics and physical laws has been to get more complicated. Maybe the next set of laws will be just too complicated for us to understand. Well, too complicated for them to understand because they get bored of it and I understand the impulse. You know, If you're not a mathematician, which I'm not, I'm more on the physics side of things. And even then, just the astrophysics side of things, which, well, if you know anything about physics, you'll know and appreciate that the mathematics that is used in astrophysics is not all that complicated. Even in quantum theory, not all that complicated. Yet to general relativity, eh, a little bit more complicated. Okay, It depends on how far you want to go into these things. String theory, very complicated. And you have to sort of sit down for a long time and, 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 and sit with these things and devote years to trying to understand what's being said there. And you get to a point, as a physicist, you kind of go, Ah, oh, what's the point? It's not even real physics anyway. Like it's not connecting to the physical world via experiments and problems that arise. And, you know, we can talk about that. The point is mathematicians are not so pessimistic about the possibility of understanding this stuff. But physicists are because they have an impulse of getting bored. And I understand that. But that's by the by. As Feynman said, there's no reason to presume that this is a necessary fact about reality, that things must get more complicated, it could be the case that we're evolving towards a simpler way of understanding physics mathematically. Namely, that the rules of physics will turn out to be more like the rules of the checkerboard rather than complicated stuff like string theory. And so I made the hypothesis often that the laws are going to turn out to be, in the end, simple like the checkerboard and that all the complexities is from size. But that is of the same nature as the other speculations that other people make. It says, I like it, you don't like it. It's not good to be too prejudiced about the thing. So if Feynman is correct and the laws of physics turn out to be more like this checkerboard stuff, then, well... Everyone will be able to understand super complex physics. Complex in the sense that the physics that comes after quantum theory and general relativity, the unification of those two things, might be really 
simple, ultimately speaking. Complex in the sense that, well, it's beyond, it's a step beyond what general relativity and quantum theory say about reality. So it's an evolution beyond that. But the rules are so simple that, you know, any primary school student will be able to understand it. Any person who's never really taken an interest in physics hitherto will be able to understand it. Maybe that's the case. That seems to be the hoped-for development that something like constructor theory might be able to provide. I don't know. Okay, Constructor theory is still being developed, but the formalism might be simple. And maybe the ways in which matter can be arranged, again, is like the rules of a checkerboard. It's just possible and impossible moves, just like chess or checkers, something simple like that. You can do this, but you can't do that, rather than, hey, here's all the complex mathematical apparatus for predicting what will happen. Forget about that. Rather than predicting what will happen, you will just have, here are the possibilities that exist in physical space. We can't say what will happen, except in certain very narrow circumstances. But overall, as we know, as we know, the future is open-ended. So how do you accommodate this real part of physical reality, namely that what people choose to do doesn't seem to be captured yet by physics, but it's part of physical reality. So how do you incorporate that inherent unpredictability of the growth of knowledge and people's choices and all that stuff within a conception of physics? After all, it needs to be as part of physics. Physics is about what happens in physical reality. It, it's not just about predicting what ensembles of particles do. That's part of it, but it's such a tiny part of physical reality. Physics is broader than that. Physics includes the whole universe, cosmology, and bits of the universe that are simple, like stars, and complex stuff like the behavior of biological organisms. Okay? It's biology, but they're still made of physical stuff. And then... Super complicated stuff like lots and lots of particles all interacting under physical forces. That's what people usually think of when they think physics. They think in terms of energy, particles, and forces. And yeah, when you've got lots of those, of course, things get complex, complicated. But that's just one aspect of physics and predicting what those things are going to do. But if you're not fixated on let's predict what those things are going to do, if you understand that, okay, yeah, maybe you want to be able to do that sometimes, some of the time. But if you also accept and just, you know, sort of relax into the idea that some things just get too complicated to predict, so okay. And in fact, some things are inherently unpredictable because of this idea of free will, human choice, human creativity, the inability to predict the growth of knowledge. But this is all part of what happens in the physical world. If you're comfortable steeped in ignorance, as Neil deGrasse Tyson says, then you can really do more interesting science. You can just talk about this is possible, this is impossible in the world. This is why I'm excited about constructive theory. It's a whole new way of looking at physics, much more exciting. And I've gotten so far away from talking about chapter 10 that, you know, we're at real risk of never getting through this chapter. <laughs> the point here is, though, that... The book of nature isn't necessarily written in this complicated mathematics that you can just read. Okay? This is what scientists, objectivists, Galileo got wrong. 
It's just that hitherto it seems to have been written in mathematics, but maybe it's written in something far more simple, a, a more logical structure, and you can call that logical structure mathematics if you like, but, you know, are the rules of checkers or chess mathematics? Mm -hmm. Kind of, kind of, but it's kind of like the difference between basic baby logic in philosophy and complex mathematics like, you know, differential equations these two things have a logical structure and there is commonality there but you know splitting hairs over whether or not one's mathematics and one isn't okay let's read one more paragraph and reflect on that and call it a day for today and then we'll we'll pick it up you know and and and, and read more over the coming weeks david goes on to say quote do abstract non-physical entities exist are they part of the fabric of reality? I'm not interested here in issues of mere word usage. It is obvious that numbers, the laws of physics and so on, do exist in some senses and not in others. The substantive question is now this. How are we to understand such entities? Which of them are merely convenient forms of words referring ultimately only to ordinary physical reality? which are merely ephemeral features of our culture, which are arbitrary, like the rules of a trivial game that we need only look up, and which, if any, can be explained only in a way that attributes an independent existence to them. Things of this last type must be part of the fabric of reality as defined in this book, because one would have to understand them in order to understand everything that is understood end quote, end of the reading for today. Let's reflect on that last point first. The whole point of the fabric of reality, and David work, David's work broadly, is to understand everything that is understood right now. And so what struck me in that wonderful podcast with Luli and David was Luli's probing of David and, 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 and pushing David on this point about the universality of computation and how it applied to, let's say, the existence of inexplicit ideas and what practical implications it might have and all that sort of stuff. And it seemed to me David's point there was, well, he's trying to understand everything that is understood and what is understood, by which we mean what we have presently good explanations for includes the universality of computation. So, Let's take that as red. That's what we understand. So if we want to understand other stuff, hitherto not yet understood, then one good starting place is to start deep, fundamentally, beneath what the brain is doing and what the mind is capable of doing and what's going on there in terms of physics, which constrains the possibility of what these emergent things are able to do. So let's take seriously this idea of the universality of computation, which implies the brain is performing computations. After all, every physical system has this one-to-one -one correspondence between, as I keep on saying, what's going on in terms of the motion of particles or what the neurons are doing and you know the possibility of simulating these things with a quantum computer. So there is this direct link between computing stuff and the physical things. So 
to understand everything that's understood, that's going to be part of it, part of the, the way in which we constrain the world. Now, could the fundamental things that we understand right now be wrong? Absolutely. But as I often say about these things, that way lies kind of a dead end in terms of making progress. It's possible that everything we know could be wrong, but if you're going to assume that, you're not going to get very far because all that's going to happen is you're contradicting all knowledge which is itself already a criticism of anything you might put forward. So somehow you have to say, first, what's wrong with that deeper fundamental theory? Point that out. You might have this wonderfully self-contained theory of psychology. You know, I often talk about Donald Hoffman, right? Donald Hoffman has this interesting idea about how, well, reality out there might not be anything like what we think it is, which so far so good. That's precisely what, you know, the fabric of reality kind of implies and the work of David Deutsch more broadly in the beginning of infinity kind of implies. We don't get to final physical reality. But then he, he jumps to, so therefore... We don't have an understanding of physical reality at all. All we have is a kind of interface which evolution has provided us with, which could be completely misleading in all ways. And then it gets a little bit wishy-washy. Then he steps beyond what we already know, and he never connects with what we actually know. He never talks about the universality of computation. He never talks about physics as we know it. He just says, he just asserts, he just comes out with something that everyone has, something that so many people have come out with before. Consciousness just is fundamental and it's the deepest thing. It is what constrains everything else without ever saying what consciousness is, except to say, well, he's got a mathematically precise theory of, computa of consciousness. He doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, I've read the papers, okay, the papers that he's put out. And Prepare to be underwhelmed with the level of detail. Prepare to be underwhelmed with how he connects any of these things to physics. He says that the physics, literally, comes out of his theory of consciousness, which would be a good project if it was true. But it's not true. He doesn't ever extract general relativity and quantum theory from his theory of consciousness. If he did, then we could have something to talk about. But he doesn't. He just promises that this would be the case or will be the case in some future development of his theory, but it hasn't happened yet. It's just a promise. But he's at least thinking along the right lines that this is what it would take. Okay, If he had a deeper theory of physics, namely a physics of consciousness, which then enabled us to predict, to show how quantum theory and general relativity arose from his theory of consciousness, then yeah, he'd be right. And if his theory of consciousness was testable, which it isn't. His so-called mathematical theory of consciousness just isn't anything like it. it. It's just not. And I think he, it's sort of, it's a little bit of a grift now, unfortunately. A lot of people are bamboozled by this. They don't understand the mathematics. The mathematics isn't particularly complicated. And when you, you look at it, it's just, a, it's, it, it's just epistemological error after epistemological error disconnected from, as I say, the fundamental theory, the fundamental explanation at the bottom, the deepest we've gone so far, of physical reality, which is the quantum theory of computation. It brings together quantum theory, our deepest known physical theory, with computation, 
the deepest understanding of how information processing works. It unites them together. It therefore constrains what is possible for minds to do, what knowledge can be created and how it can be created. All of that stuff, so knowledge creation exists in this substrate, if you like, this, 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 it's kind of, for want of another word, it nested within, uh, all these things are nested within this universality of computation. That's at the bottom. It's not to say it's the, the, the final bottom, that it's a, it's, a, it's a proper foundation, but David Deutsch works at the foundations while denying that you know, fa- foundations are a final, ultimate thing. Okay? Foundation just means it touches all these other areas. Okay? A foundational deep theory has connections to and constrains what all these other more emergent things say about the world. It can work in both directions, but you've got to figure out a way to refute that particular theory before you go and say, well, my theory of consciousness just uh, it, it, it gets deeper than that without ever explaining exactly how or what's wrong or critiquing the universality of computation. So you need to take that seriously. You need to take what we know seriously so far. And so that's what that's what David's doing. So when 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 you know, when uh, he talks to Luli about this and he's kind of saying, "Yeah, I you know, I'm I'm interested in what you have to say about this inexplicit stuff. I I want to understand it better, but hitherto, mind you, you know, I haven't heard a a, a proper good explanation of uh, this stuff." Okay. By the way, maybe by the time this is published, they will have released their next conversation where the promise is of Lully talking about how uh, the deeper theory and the deeper theory that she says can be incorporated within David Deutsch's worldview, that these things work together, uh, that there is a substantive good explanation there. So um, perhaps, but at the moment, it seems like from what David has heard that his worldview and uh, this other kind of stuff about psychology can indeed work together. And from what I've heard, by the way, just for what it's worth, I think everything Lully says is quite right, you know, that the human body reacts to inexplicit ideas. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we, we carry around these inexplicit ideas, we develop tension in our body, and we don't know why the tension is there quite often, and finding the the cause of the tension can help you to relax and feel better and all that kind of stuff. You know, you have to be careful with these things. You know, Sam Harris has this great story about how when he first got into meditation, he used to think of himself that he was just so relaxed about everything that he would go around just staring into people's eyes because he was so relaxed. And he realized that this wasn't a way of being relaxed. This was a way of, in fact, quite the opposite of making other people feel very uncomfortable sort of it was a little bit deranged and he realized that this is not true enlightenment or insight of they're just looking into someone's eyes and being very very comfortable and you know it's a bit of a and he admits himself that there was a kind of dishonesty to the whole thing that he was just kind of pretending and you know seeming to be relaxed and just looking at people and 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 then you know staring intently at people's eyes because he just felt that he was just so enlightened that this was the way in which you were able to convey to people how relaxed you are and how much you understood them and that you were present in 
in their presence and all this sort of stuff. So anyway, he talks about that. <laughs> and I, I do get that sense sometimes with some people sometimes who tend in the direction of, let's say, certain kinds of practices like that, that there's a genuine risk of not connecting with people but distancing yourself from other people. Not that Lily's doing this, I'm just saying that, that within the world of, of, of psychology, uh, mindfulness, uh, self-help, self-improvement, all that kind of thing. There, there is in the Venn diagram of those people and and reasonable versions of that. There is some crossover at times with you know that concept of all the zeal of a convert. You know, um, learning about certainly you get this within Papirian circles, absolutely. You know, people new to Papirian circles. And I, I, I fully encourage people to, to, to take the idea seriously, but there is a risk sometimes. You know, and I may very well have been this. I, I know I was certainly this when I first encountered atheism. Certainly, I was a, a, the worst kind of atheist when uh, I first read Dawkins and I read Harris on this. I became one of those evangelical atheists i just wanted to convince everyone that religion was ridiculous you know and you get the especially if you're coming out of something like christianity and then of course it takes some for want of another word degree of enlightenment to realize hey it's not all bad you know yeah you figured out something that that there's a lot of nonsense there in religion but you don't have to evangelize in exactly the same way that recent converts to religion will evangelize all the zeal of a convert. You have to be. You have to be especially critical. And people who are new to Popperian epistemology have to really take seriously the idea that the criticism applies to them and Popperian epistemology as well. I go out there. I evangelize to some extent about the work of David Deutsch and Karl Popper. Absolutely, but you have to be careful about this zeal that you're not berating, bashing people over the head with it. And you're being critical about the way in which you're explaining things. And so a self-help is like this. The self-help movement at times has this sort of zeal that can be somewhat off-putting to people not yet persuaded by it. And so I, you know, I certainly see this in Popperian circles and I balk at it and I cringe at it because... I think that you know this is the kind of thing that I used to do, that if you're new to it, you just want to tell everyone. You're so enthusiastic, but the problem is it works against you. Objectivists are wonderful at this, by the way, wonderful in the, the bad sense. They're filled with zeal. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons, there are many reasons, why people are put off the work of Ayn Rand, because the zeal is so much like religion obviously it's not religion i think they're right about so many things but the proponents of objectivism of the work of ayn rand are ever trying to persuade people in very enthusiastic and emotional ways and accusing others of being you know enemies or mixed as i often complain about that unless you are fully on board then there's something wrong with your mind. <laughs> all the zeal of a convert, it turns people off. So we always, everywhere, have to be careful of that. And again, I've gone off onto a rant that has absolutely nothing 
to do with this chapter? So let me just go back to David's questions here. So moving all the way back to the beginning of his list of questions here, he says, do abstract non-physical entities exist? So he's going to explain that, yes, they do. And in it's chapter five of the beginning of infinity, uh, the reality of abstractions, clearly he's coming down on the side of, yes, they do exist. And he explains a whole bunch of reasons why these abstract entities have real physical effects in the world. The most prominent example is knowledge. Knowledge is an abstract thing by the measure at it's independent of any physical instantiation. So it's independent of whether you write it on paper or you, you type it on a keyboard or you see it in pixels or however the knowledge happens to be represented You know, in minds. It goes on to have these causal effects on physical things. So the abstract knowledge exists. And not only does it exist, it has real physical effects in the world. David then asks, are they part of the fabric of reality? Absolutely. He says... It is obvious that numbers, the laws of physics, and so on do exist in some sense and not in others. By the way, the laws of physics are a really curious example of a kind of abstraction. They're an abstraction in the sense that, well, they're not made of matter. That's the first thing. Forces are not laws of physics. They're explained by the laws of physics. But then there are the ultimate final laws of physics, idealizations in some ways, the things that actually govern the universe. And then there's our knowledge of those laws of physics. You know, we first thought that you know, Aristotle had an idea of the laws of physics. He was wrong. Then Galileo, his version was incomplete and wrong. Newton, we thought he was correct for centuries, turned out to be wrong. Einstein came along and improved on Newton's classical physics, showing that it was wrong in a whole bunch of ways, but it was still incomplete. Quantum theory then augmented and sort of was in opposition to much of relativity and never really has fit with it. But taken together, these two things cannot simultaneously be true because it's the distinction between the discrete and the continuous. So we're still moving towards an understanding of the laws of physics. Now, understanding of the laws of physics is itself an abstraction. Our knowledge of the laws of physics is an abstraction about an abstraction the ultimate laws of physics. So all these abstract things exist, talking about physical stuff that's made of matter. David goes on to say, the substantive question is this, how are we to understand such entities? Which of them are merely convenient forms of words, referring ultimately only to ordinary physical reality, which are merely ephemeral features of our culture, which are arbitrary, like the rules of a trivial game that we only need to look up? End quote. So th that's the question of, well, stuff like the literal... You know, rules of chess and checkers. That's not Feynman's point. Feynman's point was to say, are the laws of physics, this deep truth about reality, going to turn out to be like the rules of a checkerboard? He's not saying they will be the rules of a checkerboard. The rules of a checkerboard are arbitrary and cultural and, you know, this little side issue about, you know, a game, okay? These don't have any fundamental significance, but the laws of physics will. The laws of physics will absolutely of course, have fundamental significance. So is our next best understanding of the laws of physics going to be simple like the rules of a checkerboard, which you won't just look up, okay? <laughs> David's question is, well, you can look up the rules of a game. They're abstract, but, you know, you just read the rule book and there it is. But you can't read the rule book of nature. That's Galileo's mistake. So there we go. I think that's it 
for today. This has been a long podcast about just the introductory remarks of this wonderful chapter. A chapter we can look at with fresh eyes on TopCast, given David's recent, relatively recent, last few years, speech at the acceptance of his award for the Dirac medal, one of the Dirac medals that he won, won two, uh, but the most recent one, he talked about the mathematician's misconception. That sort of built upon his work in the beginning of infinity, with the reality of abstractions and that kind of thing, and fallibilism and the work of Karl Popper. And that built upon what is here in the fabric of reality, all of which comes out of this deep, deep truth that he has come to explain for the first time ever about the link between quantum theory and computation, about how all physical systems obey the laws of physics of necessity. That's a necessary truth about the world, logical truth about the world. So if you take that seriously, what falls out of that? What are the consequences? In particular, what are the consequences for people generating knowledge? How does it mesh with Popper's own fundamental ideas about epistemology and how knowledge is created? It fits perfectly well. Okay? It's a physical explanation of Popper's abstract understanding of the fallibility and the error-prone nature of conjecturing knowledge about the world. Reality has no contradictions, and it's our job to try and resolve the contradictions in our knowledge of reality. So when you have apparent perfection in physics as Newtonian mechanics kind of gave us, you know, here's everything is just deterministic and everything just as a matter of fact obeys these physical laws that give you perfectly precise predictions. How can that possibly marry up with? But look at the real world. It's unpredictable. What do you do then? Do you just say, well, it's just too complex for us to understand. It's not inherently unpredictable. It's just that there's an intractability problem there. Well, that kind of exists, but there's something deeper to say about this. The universality of quantum computation talks about how quantum systems have this inherent fuzziness about them. The inkblot notion, the all different physically possible things actually exist out there in the multiverse in some way. What we choose to do affects the branch in which our consciousness and creativity generates objects, these large things in physical space, the physical space of the multiverse. And so all of that comes to bear on a reason why human beings are fallible, make choices and create knowledge. It works together beautifully. It's a beautiful synthesis of epistemology on the one hand and fundamental physics on the other. Philosophy and physics coming together. And this is why, again, there's so many reasons why I've talked about, even in this episode, why constructive theory is so exciting. But it brings together, you know, two of my deep passions, fundamental physics and epistemology. It provides an opportunity for a way of unifying these. As I've said a few times before, especially in my series with uh, on Chiara Maletta's work, can we have a true physics of epistemology? 
constructive theory opens the door to that kind of thing. That's thrilling and exciting. The possibility of figuring out what knowledge is possible and impossible to create. What abstractions are impossible to understand, perhaps. That's the work of Gödel and Turing. And what abstractions we can come to understand better and how we can possibly make knowledge, perhaps possibly make knowledge fast in some places, but we are restricted to only ever making very slow and incremental knowledge about certain things in other areas. These are open questions that constructive theory illuminates for us, or at least provides us the opportunity for asking and therefore answering at some point in the future. But for now, until next time, bye-bye.